This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Is it your first podcast or are you a... a... This is my first podcast. Oh, great, great. Today on The Every Lawyer, OBA President Kelly McDermott's first podcast. I'm Julia Tetro-Provencher and thank you for tuning in. We recorded this conversation with Kelly earlier this year as part of our forthcoming mini-series on the 30th anniversary of the CBA Touchstones Report, affecting actual change on EDI in the legal profession since 1993. Throughout November, we will be hearing from original members of the CBA Touchstones Task Force, the Bertha Wilson Task Force, and from a diverse group of women lawyers from across Canada, including Kelly, on the challenges still facing women in the legal profession today. The Every Lawyer Touchstones mini-series will be launched at the WLF, the Women Lawyers Forum, annual conference in November 2nd and 3rd, 2023, in Toronto. But my full conversation with the OBA president starts now. So perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining us. So my first question to open is, how do you think the work that has been done by the Touchstone Task Force and other gender equality advocates, uh, how it has improved your professional life? Thank you. So so first off, I can't believe 1993 was 30 years ago. Yeah, um, right. That's, that seems amazing <laughs> to me. So, you know, I, I, I refreshed myself on the Touchstone Task Force report again. And, you know, I've been employed in a variety of legal sectors since my entry into the legal profession in 2004 and then called to the bar in 2007. So I've been with a sister firm in Toronto. I've done boutique firms inside and outside Toronto and for the last 13 years as a um, in-house senior government counsel. And what I can say is, you know, certainly some of the structural impediments that were noted in the task force, I, you know, I think they still exist today. However, when I, I reviewed um, the concerns, it was noted in Chapter 6, which is in relation to gender equality in, in government legal departments, so my neck of the woods. I can really appreciate the advances that have been made, I think, in my small part of the world. I, I work at a, a sophisticated upper-tier municipality you know, that it has endorsed the best practices when it comes to accommodation, training, um, and EDI in general. And and I think that's really translated into gender balance. Our senior leadership, including our female, we have a female CAO, we have a female commissioner of finance, commissioner of social services, uh, and I hold a senior legal position in our department, and we have a, a very, you know, balanced gender demographics in our legal department. And certainly, while I've I've noted, you know, anecdotal challenges on particular files or with particular clients in, in sort of relation to, to to gender inequality, I don't recognize the structural limitations I think that are outlined in, in the task force. Despite some, you know, what I would say competing demands and limitations that I have, you know, I'm a single mom, I have an episodic disability. I'm a caretaker to someone with special needs. And of course, now I've got the, the added element of, of being the president of the Ontario Bar Association. I, I don't see the same structural limitations along gender lines as I certainly experienced in private practice over the past decade. And, and I'll just say one of the things that drew me to the OBA um, and the CBA was its leadership on EDI in our profession. You know, we have boasted an all-female officers team. Um, you know, we've seen the torch pass between several female presidents of various backgrounds. 
and intersectionality over the past few years and the next two years to come. Um, and, you know, that leadership, I think, really has set the stage for the profession, um, you know, in terms of education, advocacy, initiatives that, that put those ideas into practical action and change, not just for women, but for for other, as you noted, other equity seeking groups. And and we're seeing this through the benefit of, um, you know, admissions into law school. We're seeing entry into the practice. And I think we're continuing to work on promoting equitable and inclusive practices when it comes to distribution practice, distribution of work and promotional practices within firms. You know, at, at the OBA, one of my main mandates is, is to focus on the lives of lawyers and providing support to our members to help them advance in their careers. And, and so, um, you know, I think the OBA has been very important in that in that respect to, to seeing some of the work that the task force envisioned coming into reality. So that's something very interesting, you know, that you you have some very lived examples of uh, some recommendation of the task force um, that were implemented. So that's what I understand. Uh, do you have more examples? Because I think it's very, you know, it's 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 um, I love that. I love to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I think um like I said, with working in in a in an upper tier municipality that's that has spent a lot of time on, um, you know, has spent a lot of time on, on creating best practices and and the working with the OBA, who I think has just been a leader in the in initiating these uh, these things. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of took that chapter six because that's my lived world right now. I was working in a in a government setting, and I I kind of compared it to my day to day, and I and I sat down and I thought I, I I don't see the same impediments that you know that I would I experienced in private practice. I mean, I, I certainly you know over a decade ago, I I I made a you know like many women, I made a choice to pivot to private practice because I I was starting family. And, um, you know, I was I, I saw that it was going to be very difficult for me to thrive in that environment and move my my career forward um, in that environment. And, and that moving to, to a government where we work, you know, we work much more um, collaboratively. There's much less focus on, you know, time as being sort of the component we value and we measure. And, and so that's been, you know, that has made all the difference for me and has allowed me to do things like be part of the Ontario Bar Association, sit on a number of volunteer organizations and board of directors, um, you know, that they've, I've had that, that freedom and agency and that sort of work-life balance that uh, I think we're all striving towards. I, I certainly don't have it yet, but I think we're all striving towards it. The ultimate goal. <laughs> yeah. But okay. So that's also interesting. A lot of, uh, if so, I've done this often now, I've, I've like, I'm, I think I'm my fifth person I'm interviewing or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I've heard a lot of women, oh, if not all actually, saying that they decided to move away from the private mm-hmm. practice because of the, well, many reasons, some discrimination, some because of the workload, some because, but basically at the end of the day, it's just they decide to not to stay there for their own good. And I'd like to hear more, you know, what should be done? What can be done? What, what, why is that for the private practice? And because I feel like maybe this hasn't evolved. You know, I, I think I think that the key focus, you know, and, and like I said, in my neck of the woods, I, I don't see it as much. But I certainly, you know, as as being the president of a seventeen thousand member association, I see it in the legal profession in general. And I I think one of the main issues is we need to take the emphasis off the practice of law as being valued through and quantified in time. You know, we really should be instead looking at the value added to the profession and our clients. And I'd like to see. Again, that more team collaborative focused approach to legal work that not only not only accepts diversity, but embraces it and actually sees the intrinsic value in it. 
you know, I, it's interesting, I'm a caretaker to someone on the, the ASD spectrum, so the autism spectrum, and, and while they have so many talents and strengths, um, they, they wouldn't be valued and adequately measured in the traditional firm structure that we have, right, and in the recruitment process or within the practice of law as it stands today. So we just need to rethink, I think we need to rethink success uh, as a profession. We That doesn't, I say, you know, I don't think that belongs to one group, that belongs to all of us. But, um, you know, I, I hope that the next steps we take do do take some emphasis off of, of you know, imposing imposing time to get ahead. Because that, that's what we're seeing, is that if, if you're in a billable hour structure, if you're in a model that uh, values time, that means that's time away from other things in your lives. And, and you know, one of our key focuses of the OBA is, is looking at life, you know, life not only in the legal profession, but life as a lawyer because of that intersectionality of trying to balance competing demands, competing intersectionalities and um, and finding support to, to do that. Uh, my mandate this year is, is centered around developing peer support networks. And I, and this came from a pretty honest place. Um, I, you know, I had a great deal of challenges. I think like a, a number of people did during COVID. Uh, around my health. Like I said, I have an episodic disability. Uh, I've been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Um, I became a single mom during that period. So I went through a pretty bad divorce. And I really turned to my colleagues at the OBA who who shared, you know, who, who, knew, who knew what it's like to have all these competing demands, you know, these life challenges, these life crises, and how to and and what it also means to be a lawyer and how to make sure that you can maintain both and and come out and and that was like the key to get me through i'm i'm not particularly resilient but that that gave me the resilience that peer support that that peer support that was safe it was a community of interest people who got it um and so that really led to where my mandate's going this year which is providing reliable and accessible supports for for lawyers when when life shows up and uh, I'm I'm happy to announce we're we're launching our first um, peer support network. So we've taken a lot of time to set these up as very safe, reliable spaces uh, for lawyers with community of interest. And and given my experience, we're starting with um, lawyers with disabilities. So that's um, starting on September 14th. We're going to have our first uh, group where people are going to come together, talk about their concern, talk about their challenges, share ideas, and just find that space and. Um, and so I, I know I've gone off on a bit of a tangent from your original question, but um, not at all. It's very good, but, actually. No, no. But that's but that's really what it is. It's that it's it's how we value we value the practice of law and and maybe not putting the emphasis on on the right things, which is you know making sure that our you know our clients are served, but also making sure that we're protecting our our members and our lawyers and our profession because um we do see you know as as the cba put out their report on some of the yeah. uh, psychological impacts on lawyers and just and just how you know that how alarming those statistics were to me uh but not a surprise either mm-hmm. uh you know i think we need to start thinking about structural change i i think firms have done and and you know, I actually think employers sort of across across the we've done a really good job at um, you know particularly in the last couple of years around mental health, around promoting racialized and indigenous lawyers, um, and promoting EDI initiatives in general. I think we've done a really good job of showing that you know firms are paying attention to it, um, lawyers are paying attention to it, are deeming it a priority. But where I'm I'm seeing that we're we haven't 
we haven't quite turned that policy that that those ideas that political will into action yeah. mm-hmm. and and you know I, I i made the the joke the other day that um you know some firms have been said we've been setting up mindful meditation sessions uh you know throughout different areas different workplaces i've heard it a couple times and i said you know it's difficult to say you know you, you should you need to spend 30 minutes a day doing mindful meditation but you better make up those 30 minutes later to catch up on your billable hours so we need to, like like so we need to start thinking differently about the structure and what we're valuing and and opening our minds a little bit and embracing embracing what diversity brings to the table diversity you know not just in demographics but diversity in thought so you know i'm hoping that's where things are going next and i i'm i do applaud the firms for really giving this the attention it deserves it's just you know where, where sometimes where policy and political will falls down is where it doesn't turn into tangible action No, thank you very much. Actually, your answer was very, very good. So you mentioned, so you're the president of OBA and you already mentioned a little bit like what a, a bar association can do. And I mean, congratulations also for your initiatives. I think it's very, very interesting and important because that's also something that keeps coming up is the fact that uh, people, women or people in the diverse range uh, do need a network and they need to connect and they need to talk about their similar issues. So that makes them stronger. So this idea, I mean, I can't wait to see how will be the outcomes of this because uh, it's such a great initiative and really congratulations for that. Uh, so, and I kind of guess also that it can bring some mentorship. So I'd like to hear your thoughts a bit on how you think mentorship can be effective for furthering women lawyers' career and uh, how you see that the bar can do also that the implication of a bar. So the, the OBA has been, you know, absolutely pivotal for the mentorship I received as a young lawyer. I've been involved with the OBA since, you know, since the young lawyers division. So since I started many moons ago, and also, you know, I've, I've now been on the other end where I've been, you know, able to mentee other lawyers, uh, you know, including making client connections and, or uh, actually hired one of the connections I made, one of the networks I made, one of the mentees I had through the OBA. So, um, You know, the OBA has always, I think, made mentorship a key priority, you know, for for young lawyers' career development, for succession planning, for emerging areas of law. And I think a really great recent example, which was um, spearheaded by uh, our past past president, uh, Charlene Theodore, um, was the Career Accelerator Program, which was to promote racialized and Indigenous lawyers in the emerging areas of law, such as um, AI, fintech, um, and ESG. And this program really galvanized, um, you know, the expertise that these lawyers already had. They were, they were quite brilliant. I sat and listened to them and I was just in awe of, of what they brought to the table. But it was also designed to give them an extra boost to build connections and to provide networks for opportunities that, you know, some of the some of the structural deficiencies in our system have prevented. So it, it was such a success. And you know, one of the things being part of an association is it brings, you know, all level of lawyers together, different practice areas and different, you know, different diversity, diverse backgrounds. It brings them all together. And it, and it has just played such a key role in my development as a, as a lawyer. And, um, you know, I think in my day-to-day job, I think there's a less formalized mentorship plan working at, a, again, a municipality at a government. So we have, I have plenty of certainly plenty of opportunities to grow to grow practice areas and areas of expertise that are are beyond the the area of law that that I have an expertise in so it's certainly it's been very important for my career development and 
And we're also really good at supporting um, and promoting from within working again as a team has been really important um, because everybody gets exposure to a lot. And you can also take vacation without having to worry that your work's going to fall by the wayside, like that, you know, everybody's on board and it's going to get done. And because because of all that, we we actually boast a very small turnover rate. Like we don't, not many people leave the municipality once they start there. And um, and when someone does, it's usually means they're going on to bigger and better things because they've created this breadth of experience that um, that they may not get in a traditional firm setting where you're kind of focused on one specialty area. Like I I've been involved in in so many things that I said I you know I entered the meeting. I'm like I have no business being here, but here I am. <laughs> And she, you know, and I, and I learn, and it's really, it's I, I continue to learn, even you know, twenty plus years into my career, and and that's, that's amazing. And so, so there's, I, I have found mentorship opportunities not only through my professional association, but also in my, in my day to day work structure. That's beautiful, and I think you also you show that mentorship can help the retention because that's that mm -hmm. might be an issue sometimes. You know, we have uh, you hire people for diversity, but next thing you know, you don't have anything to support them, uh, so they just don't stay uh, because they don't feel welcomed or they feel you know there's so many reasons. I think that's also a good example, and, and I'd it's like, even more yeah. pivotal today, though. Like, I mean, sorry to interrupt, but it's even no, a bit no, no. more pivotal today because. You know, because through COVID, we we did embrace telework. And so what was really interesting, at least in my sector, was, uh, like I said, we're, we're pretty static, but the career opportunities opened up geographically. So, you know, me being a lawyer in, in Durham region, I can now work in Peel region. And so that that's why it's made it so much more important to, you know, to embrace, you know, these these. Um, principles that I think are very important to to lawyers coming into firms, you know, including that mentorship, growth, diversity, all, all these things. You know, it's really it's made it even more important to to turn those you know principles into action. And 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 so I, I think um, you know certainly that I'm seeing that's happening even more so now. But um, But it, it is more important that the, the you know the firms and the employers who who don't embrace that are are going to see a lot of turnover. They're going to have difficulty recruiting, and and it's no longer just about money. <laughs> I think it really is about so mm -hmm. about work life balance and about potential for growth and and potential for um, and and recognition of important principles like inclusion. Yeah. So so that brings me to the EDI policies that you mentioned already a little bit. And I kind of like it because you seem to have a view that, you know, they can work, uh, which is refreshing because so, so far we, I haven't heard so much like good experiences of the EDI policies. But I'd like so to hear you. What do you think about um, EDI policies? Uh, do you think, you know, it is very useful? And have you seen them well applied? Also, I think we need example of EDI policies that are well applied. So. I mean, having an EDI policy is is absolutely the the most pivotal first step, right? Because I mean, you know what it does is it demonstrates commitment, recognition, and you know a political will. And so, so I would you know, I appreciate some people will be a bit maybe be a bit skeptical of what they can do, and I understand why that is. But I think there it's the it's the first step and it's very important. And I think a lot of employers and firms have now taken that first step and not only developing EDI policies, a lot of firms and employers are, have EDI departments, divisions, right? So they're, they are putting this emphasis that we never saw before. So I don't want to discount how valuable that is. 
because it has to be that you have to start with that sort of top down ethos. Like you need that, you need that as a core principle in place and you need your leaders to say, this is important to us. And so hundred percent, yes, it's important. We need them. Um, you know, where, where they can get lost is if they don't, as we talked about, translate into tangible action. And when we see it use as lip service, so I, I gave you the, you know, my, my fake example of you have to do 30 minutes of mindful meditation, but you better make that time up tonight. Um, you know, that, that's where, that, that's where the, the policy doesn't, doesn't fit with, with what people's lived experiences are. And so we need to take, We've taken the very important first step and we need to take the very important next step, which is turning that policy, that commitment, that will, which is is there right now and turning it into action. You know, I, the OBA has been that that's really been a focus of the OBA is creating some really objective and tangible programs and tools. We, you know, we did it through our Not Another Decade campaign. We had our innovator in residence. I talked about the Casilla Career Accelerator Program. We had a work that works that allows firms to sort of do a score sheet and, and, and remain, you know, reliable, accountable, and then reporting back. People need to, you can't send a survey out and say, tell me, tell me how, how things are in, under an EDI lens and you can, you get back a horrible result and then nobody hears about it again, right? Um so it, it's so that piece is so important. And I think, you know, we need to act, you know, firms and employers need to act a bit quicker to start showing. And, and they don't need to be dramatic, big changes, because I, I understand, like, I understand it is not going to be easy to overturn the billable hour structure, you know, given because, again, these are businesses, there is a profit motive. I understand that. Um, so sometimes we don't need to think so big. I think sometimes if we think a bit smaller and start seeing some tangible actions, thinking about, you know, where where are the bottlenecks to promotion, for example? I mean, traditionally at firms, I always, I, I remember when I, when I got pregnant, I was kind of at that time in my career where I thought, boy, oh boy, this is going to, this is now going to delay my attempts to become a partner, right? Because, you know, I'm going to be now behind I'm going to be gone for a period of time and I'm not going to be able to maintain those client networks that I might want to maintain and I'm not going to have the build hours behind me and so this is definitely going to stunt my career and and so we need to think about that and we need to think okay well that that's that doesn't make sense <laughs> that doesn't make sense that that should stunt their career and you know at the time for me what it what it forced me to do is I worked throughout my pregnancy leave I took a short pregnancy leave which I deeply regret now. Like I regret that 15 years later, like I regret that I, I, I felt shortchanged on that. And, and at the time I remember just feeling so guilty and worried that all the momentum I had made with my clients was going to be lost. And so I felt nobody, nobody was telling me I had to, but I felt compelled by the structure. And so, you know, we need to look at things like that. What is the, what is the partnership track? What is, you know, what are areas we can do to ensure that women lawyers in particular, but male lawyers as well, can can have that time with their their family without losing on on their careers. And, you know, I don't think we've got quite there, but there's like there are tangible points that we can look to to say, how can what can we do to tweak that? What can we do to make that more plausible? Um, and I just don't think we've got there. And, and it amazes me that that's still like that. It's still the, the, the issue today. Like there's still, you know, 90 percent of um, executives are, are still men. Right. Like it's mm -hmm. still there's still a pay equity wage gap. There's still all these things that are out there. And and so where, you know, in our profession, I think the bottleneck is, is in that middle 
level. It's not, entry is not as bad anymore. Like we, you know, our law schools are very, in fact, I think there's probably more women than men now in, in our law schools. I don't have that stat on the top of my head, but I, anecdotally, I've, I've noted that. And there's lots of women coming into the profession. Um, and so then why is, why aren't they translating into the senior partners or the senior positions? Um, and, and that's not happening. And so like, it's just about recognizing where the bottlenecks are and, and providing more points of entry and accommodating, like, you know, we have the tools. It's just, it's just about thinking about turning those tools into action. For me, it's also uh, positive because we managed, we, we knew it was an, an issue, the fact that we had no women at the university level. Now we have them. They are there. They are studying. We have so many, so many uh, jurists or, you know, lawyers. But then what's up at the top? I don't know what's happening, but there's definitely now the issue is in the middle. Yeah. And, and, and. Or, or the attrition out of oh, yeah. sector too, right? Like that's. Exactly. Uh... Exactly. Uh, yeah, John well, is saying. John, yeah. 58% were female students entered. There you go. So. I mean. I mean, I mean, and I mean, so, and so do you, you have the... the statistics there and it's just, there's a drop off at the end. And, and, yeah. and so it is so important to know this data, right? Yeah. Because this is what, this is where we see where we need to, where change needs to be effective. And, yeah. and it's that sort of middle area and, and it is, and, and, you know, it'd be interesting then to take that stat about, because, because the entry of women into, into the legal profession was, wasn't a big issue 20 years ago right and, and maybe not as much of an issue now now we may you know what other what are the statistics around other equity seeking groups coming into the profession as well that's that's another potential bottleneck as well and so it's, it's really about finding where where are we seeing the bottlenecks like like women moving up to a, a more senior level or or leaving private practice altogether and um and and finding ways to make changes. And again, I, I, I think we're also, we all think we need to do something so big that it needs to be really big and dramatic and, and, you know, but I think change can start small and, and can start moving in that direction. And like I said, for, for me, it was, you know, I worked when I was in private practice and even when I actually started at the, at the region, it was very, I worked very siloed. I was, um, I didn't have a, much of a team around me. And so it, it was very distressful when I had to go on, Um, when I went on vacation or if I had to leave or or if I was busy because then work wasn't getting done and I was worried about, you know, client relations, et cetera. And, and I can't tell you the the value of having a team around me and that, that I, you know, there's no competition for work. We all have, the work is all there and we we triage it according to who can handle what. And if something was going on in somebody's life, then that they that they had to pull out. My my kid's sick this week. I'm I'm out of commission. The work isn't getting affected, and that's like that's we got to think about that. Like we got to take this this individualistic, siloed, com competitive nature out of the the practice of law and start working, start working together for the value of of our clients and for the value and for the value of our of our lawyers. Like I can't tell you the the burden that took off me by having the ability to, to know that if I'm not there, somebody else is, somebody else is going to pick up the ball um, because I can't tell you how many vacations I worked on over the years or missed or had to, or had to give the time back because I ended up working the whole vacation. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not unique in that way. Most lawyers do that. Most of us work on the weekends and, and to the expense of our, of our families and our personal lives and our mental health and, We know the problems there. We just got to start thinking about little ways, little ways we can start fixing it.
It's very encouraging because I do think that sometimes firms see that, you know, they have the, the, the result of their EDR questionnaire or whatever, and they're like, where do we start? But I think it's true. You can't, you, there are little ways where you can start. So uh, thank you for this answer. I like that bit positivity and all that. So uh, very, very um, appreciated. And also I would like to hear, because I do believe, I'm pretty sure you have some thoughts on equity and equality because, well, you know, it's, um, Sometimes we will hear, well, you know, there's enough women or what do they need anymore? <laughs> They're treated as our equal. And uh, so can you talk a bit about uh, how you see that treating unequal people equally is a form of oppression? Oh, that's so, great. <laughs> no, I, I wanted to give this the proper thought. It I love that. Thank and it shows. It shows very much. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> Inequality in itself is is on everyone to address, and and so I, I I always worry that you know we shouldn't put the work exclusively on those affected to address the systems, right? So I you know and behaviors that disadvantage them that that work is on everybody. But on the flip side, no solution should be created without consulting and listening to the groups that are most impacted. I mean that is. You know, also true for accommodations in the workplace, you need to have a, a not a one size sort of fits all approach to equality. You know, you need to look at the individuals and 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 get the input, but but also not put all the responsibility of change on the equity seeking group, because I, I sometimes I think we do that. Right. And I, I think that can be um, that puts an enormous amount of pressure on the equity seeking group. It also um, lets others up their hands and say, well, I got nothing to do with this or I don't have a voice in this. And and I think that's not, I, I think we all should have a voice in the discussion, I think, around EDI, even if you aren't a member of an equity senior yeah. group, I think everybody's got a, a role to play. And, but, I, but I also think we need to be, as much as I say that, we all have a role to play and we shouldn't put the responsibility on one, on one group who's seeking, who's been disadvantaged. We also need to, on the flip side, um, make sure that that we are are that they're being represented and that their their lived experiences are being heard and considered and 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 you know for me it was it was really interesting um, you know I was about my my disability um, I I was very um, I, I felt compelled very early on in my career to hide it for fear of reprisal I don't think that's a, a you know, I think that's probably a story many people have, but for fear of, of reprisal that my work would quality. And, and I, I did see a bit of that in practice when I, I revealed it to, to certain, um, to certain people. Um, so I, I hit a lot of, a lot of my struggles and, you know, I hit a lot of my struggles from my disability. I hid struggles when I went through a divorce during COVID. I hid, I hid that. And, you know, when I got into this position and I got in, I got the presidential mandate and, um, you know, I, I felt very compelled that I needed to be, you know, as open and transparent about my struggles as possible because I don't want others to feel the weight of that. You know, I, I have some little things that, again, I'm going off on a tangent, but there's some little things I, uh, you know, through through multiple sclerosis, I've, I've lost some of the use of my right hand. So my handwriting is atrocious. And and sometimes I slur my speech and I often just sort of, I, I, work through it or I make an excuse for it. I don't give, you know, I, I never acknowledge it. And I, and so I haven't given other people an opportunity to help accommodate me or work with me when I, when maybe I've needed it. Um, 
And, and I've made the presumption that if I say this, either there's going to be a puzzle or somebody's going to take some control or agency away from me, which I didn't want. But I, I think by being open about it, I, I, I think given this platform, I really don't want other lawyers to struggle like that. I want them to have the ability to. And, and if it isn't going to their employer, to, like I said, to going to their peers, um, you know, because nobody knows the struggles of being a lawyer than a lawyer. So going to their peers who maybe have similar struggles and being able to talk through some of those issues like that, that was everything to me. And so that's why that's why I've, I've been very open, way more open than I think I ever wanted to be or ever thought I was going to be going into this presidential mandate. But but I really saw saw the importance of it because, um, you know, inequality can't be addressed if we don't know the issues there. And um, and and that certainly, you know, I, there was definitely things that I could have that could have been accommodated in my workplace had I said something. And so I, I want I want to empower lawyers to also advocate for themselves. Um, around, you know, what do they need? Uh, because, gosh, I mean, <laughs> I think people are much more open to have those discussions than, than we give them credit for, especially now, especially now where the political will and the recognition of EDI has become so important. I think those conversations are, are, are much easier than they would have been for me 10 years ago. And, you know, I think you mentioned something so important, the fact that sometimes people are scared to mention what they need. And also lawyers, we know we don't want to to say what we need because we don't want to look weak. And also the, the famous report of the mental health uh, issues in the legal profession, it's, it links it to this fact that we need to be like super women or super men and uh, we don't have any flaws and we don't want to show our flaws. So I can imagine the, the difficulties that you had to share that, but I can also only congratulate you for putting yourself out there and also for sharing that because I'm sure it also inspires other to to be like, hey, I also have those issues and I, I should mention them. So, and you never go off the track, by the way, everything is good. So, but honestly, it's like, it's very, very good. It was when I first started my my presidency and I, I kind of came out with this and I just, I remember like, I just felt sick to my stomach when I did mm. it because it was out, like, it wasn't just to my immediate colleagues, like it was out, it was out in public about what my personal life was all about and what was so encouraging was I got so many cold calls from lawyers like right across the province sharing their experiences um what I actually found really interesting there was a lot of lawyers who were on the um uh who were neurodivergent so who were on the autism spectrum ADHD and and a lot of them were saying I I've been hiding this forever but it's you know translated into interpersonal problems because I have different perceptions of social relations than, than maybe a neurotypical lawyer would have. And, and, you know, we know that some cult, some law firm cultures can be very rigid and restrictive. And so if you're a bit different, then that could be difficult. And, and so, um, you know, that has also sort of made my, my mandate branch out even further. Uh, and particularly with my experience with um, the, um, I guess, as a caretaker to someone on the spectrum is, is to recognize where, um, you know, where these, where there are disabilities that you could hide or, you know, inequalities you could hide. Um, you know, how do we get to the point where people can feel safe to speak and and safe to make the request for accommodation? I, I, I know, like, I'm a, I'm a labor lawyer in my, in my day-to-day job. And, um, you know, I was, I was, remember sort of reflecting on it that the only time I ever, came across cases where um, neurodivergence was was 
sort of identified as as part of the equation were usually they were usually sort of triaging. So so there'd been uh, you know workplace conflict or harassment complaint or something. So we were dealing with it on the tail end versus dealing with it on the front end. Meaning you know what do you what do you bring to the table? What what you know what what things? How can we accommodate you from the outset? And also even in the recruitment process, how can we how can we broaden it to see what we're actually focusing on? What is, you know, because people on the spectrum, neuro, people with neurodivergency, some have some incredible talents. I think I think about um, my own experience, some incredible talents that may not be measured in in a traditional recruitment process. And so I, I've also been thinking about, um, you know, developing my mandate a, a bit in that direction, getting a little bit more targeted on, on neurodivergence, but just, just because of, you know, my own experience, but also the like the outpouring of lawyers who just happen to be on the spectrum and, and were just like wanting to share, wanting to be like, oh my God, thank you for sharing because because I've, I'm holding this in and I've experienced these problems in my career and um, and and I really didn't know how to ask for accommodations without, um, you know, without feeling that I'm going to be the subject of reprisal or, you know, being taken off client facing events because they're concerned about my socialization skills or or things like that. So, um, yeah, it's been it's paid off in spades, like, uh, you know, being being open and as as terrifying as it was like it really I, I really see the value that it that it's it's given to other people because it allows other people some room to share their stories too also yeah and i think we don't have the stats for this either but i think we discovered that people on the spectrum is way higher than we thought way it's higher. it's way higher so it's also good and i think maybe sometimes people don't even know they are but if they, if they hear the stories of other people that are they'd be like oh that's why that's I understand better now. A lot of a mm-hmm. lot of individuals are getting diagnosed as adults now because mm-hmm. we just didn't have the the diagnostic testing, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago that mm-hmm. they do today. Like it's um, you know, they're they're identifying people in the spectrum much earlier today. And and you know, there's a high incidence. I think there's a high incidence of people who would define themselves on the spectrum. And of course, we know that that doesn't mean um they're all the same because no, you know, exactly. spectrum is a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, it's, but it's huge. But yeah, a lot of the it's interesting. A lot of the the lawyers who did call were saying they were diagnosed as adults because their children were diagnosed, and they thought mm, I have some of these mm-hmm. issues too, and maybe maybe and and so they were getting diagnosed. So that's happening too now. Is people are now understanding that I didn't even realize I needed an accommodation until now. Like it hasn't been. It's never really been defined. I've just realized I've been sort of struggling in this area or haven't quite fit into the the regular mold of, of what we think being a lawyer is. And, and so, you know, I think there's a great opportunity to sort of expand what we're valuing as a profession, what we're measuring, what we're looking at, what we're, how we're awarding, um, you know, rewarding people for what they're producing. Like it just, I think there's a great opportunity to, to really blow open how we've traditionally looked at things. What I hear from you as well is like, Making sure to have this environment and your firm when you're in your businesses with that people feel comfortable to come forward and say that they need some accommodation because I think that's also the extra step that uh, firms need to do, the legal profession needs to do uh, so that people feel like, okay, I can ask and I won't be misjudged. Uh, and also, you know, you saying that we think people but people are more open than we think. That's also very positive. And I like that. I like to tell it. And you're right, because true. we see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. You know, I've had some incredible um, mentors and bosses in the past that, um, you know, that I have been candid with and have been really 
great about mm-hmm. um, about working with me to find the right accommodation and and being really flexible and and not imposing what they think is the right answer on me, but actually involving me in the dialogue a little bit. And, um, and, you know, I see that I'm, again, in my day job as a labor lawyer that, uh, you know, that our, our approach to accommodation is very individual and, um, and we're very open to it and, and responsive to it. And so, um, you know, I, I think, I think that maybe we don't give people enough credit and that I think, I think if we, if we're a little brave and have the conversation and, and really think about, you know, I, I would never come into a meeting not having some ideas in my mind about how, you know, here, here's the problem, but here's how I think we can fix it. Here are a couple of ideas. So so being part of the process, not just laying the problem down on your, your boss's shoulders and saying, here, here it is and resolve it for me. That, that's that's not helpful. I think I think it's opening. I think people are really open to dialoguing and, and thinking outside of the box. And so. Again, you know, while we want this big organizational structural change across our profession, um, there's a lot of things, a lot of change that can happen just sort of in microcosms of just working relationships with, you know, partner associate, like, you know, or, or, or lawyer um, assistants. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of dynamic flexibility and accommodations that happen on day to day basis that um, that is just as important as the, the overall structural changes. Definitely. So now my last, uh, because we have like 10 more minutes and I don't want to take more of your time, but there's two last questions that I, I, I ask everyone. Uh, the first one, and you all, again, don't have to answer if you don't want to, okay. <laughs> um, but if you could share with us um, specific instances uh, of discrimination that uh, you have lived, whether it's gender discrimination or intersecting type uh, of discrimination um, so that you have encountered in your career um, and how it made you feel and, and, And if you could do anything about it, maybe you haven't. And we, I've heard a lot of women saying, I haven't done anything because I just, I just handled it, you know, and I was like, well, whatever. So yeah, I'd like to hear you yeah, if you have it. You yeah, already talked about I mean, it a little bit, but if you have anything else you want to add. Sure. I mean, I, I've been in the profession for a while now. And, and as I've said, I, you know, I, I really can't claim I've seen some meaningful positive change. So I, again, I'm, I'm very, I'm very much looking at with the glass glass half full approach to things but and i love that by the way i love that approach <laughs> i'm yeah, like that too <laughs> we've made change we have made change mm-hmm. that's important but um yeah certainly i've been subject to sexual harassment and i've had to prioritize my work over my role as a mother and like i had to change i felt like i had to change my career because of gender limitations in the in the private practice system um yeah of course i felt those things and i didn't you know at the time in the mo- those moments I, I didn't do a lot because I feared reprisal. And, I, and then I give you on the other side of it was with respect to my disability. So I, I kept it very quiet for a really long time. I, the, the one time I did come forward to, to my boss at the time and just, you know, said, this is, this is what's going on with me. I'm in the middle of an episode and, um, and, you know, very well-meaning and compassionate and, and, and all that, but, but it, a bit came in and took some of my work away from me. And, um, and, you know, I, I don't put any ill intent behind that, you know, what happened in that moment, but, but it took away my agency and control in a time where I already felt like I was spinning out of control. And so, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think I, I didn't, haven't done much in the moment. And, and all I can say is I feel like I'm doing something about it now, which is, is through this mandate and through, talking to people like you and putting my whole story out in the in the big bad in the big bad world 
Um, but but that's, you know, having these discussions and, you know, I hope another young lawyer who faces this and, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are still these things. I, I mean, I know these things are still happening in the workplace and in, in law firms. You know, I, I hope that they can find their voice and uh, and find their their people who can who can help them navigate through them. But I yeah, no, I I met like many other female lawyers. I sucked it up a lot and kept it kept it hidden. I think right now with the with the benefit of time, I think I could have done more at the time. Um, but, you know, I, I at least I at least can say I've done something now. <laughs> oh no yeah definitely and i mean also doing this podcast i mean and all the other things you're doing as a president of the oba but the, this podcast this idea also is to encourage you know uh other women to, to step up and uh, to, to say like you're not alone uh but you definitely with everything you've been saying to me i'm like wow i'm very impressed so you are definitely uh trying to make a change uh in the legal profession and i thank you for that being myself in the legal profession with my colleagues and uh friends so thank you <laughs> And well, I, I, I hope the Quebec Bar is doing the same. So, <laughs> so galvanized by the the Bar Association, right? Mm -hmm. Like they they've really been. Yeah. I mean, the association itself has been like a mentor to me because they they've just led change mm -hmm. on on these areas where, uh, and have made the dial and have opened up the dialogue and have you know I think most of the firms, especially the big firms now, all have EDI departments and staff, and. That's amazing. I couldn't imagine that a decade ago. Like that's amazing. That's that we've the the attention has been focused and brought, and so that you know that gives empowers me a little bit to talk a bit more and to be a bit more open about you know where I hope the profession is going to go. Um, and I've been really impressed with even just some of my colleagues at the different firms for some of the steps that they've taken to to move you know move the pendulum and. Um, you know, it's all those small steps that matter. Sometimes it's like, like I said, sometimes we see a problem and it's so big and we don't think we can handle it. But it's all these all these small steps is helping, helping, empowering someone else to take another step. And, you know, eventually that is going to push us in the right direction. Very much. And you just like, well, that's a perfect segue for my last yeah. question, which <laughs> is how do you see, because you said, you know, how we wanted to see the profession evolve. So where would you like to see the profession in uh, like another 30 years? So we meet again, we talk about, you know, the 30th yeah. anniversary of the Touchstone Report. And now well, you're retired by then. Yeah, I hope, I hope for you, you are. I think I've kind of, uh, already launched where, mm -hmm. where I want things to go. And I, I think, you know, I hope that the emphasis of our practice law is, is really being, you know, looked at, you know, taking the emphasis off of the value and the, and the quantity of time we spend on work. But again, focusing on the value added to the profession and as a whole and to our clients. And, and I would like to see, you know, what, what I see in my small part of the world that, you know, more collaborative and team focused approach to legal work that that not only accepts diversity, but embraces it. Right. And so, you know, I hope, you know, I hope that we have taken the next steps, you know, 30 years, like I said, right now, I think we've done such a good job of raising attention to the issue, developing some of the structural necessities to make change happen. So all that's great. And I hope, you know, I hope in the next 10 years, not 30 years, but like, particularly in 30 years, I hope that um, the next steps to action have been taken, that, that, you know, that the change has resulted in action has resulted in results. And we can, we can sit back in 
10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, we're not going to be talking about 90% of the profession being dominated at the executive level, the senior level by men like that. I, I hope that's changed because, because we've identified the issues, we've taken action and, we, and we've now are seeing the results. So I hope we see the results in 30 years. But like I said, I, if, if I'm going to, I think we're going to do much better than that. I think, I think in 10 years time, gosh, if I look back 10 years, I, I don't think I would believe how far we've advanced today. Right. I, I couldn't imagine firms having, um, you know, put the emphasis on EDI the way that it is. And it is, you know, it is embedded in most firms, employers, strategic plans now. Um, you know, it's you're, you're, you're kind of an outsider if you have not in, in embedded EDI into your strategic plan uh, and your core value as an organization. So, like, that's amazing. That's um, a lot already. Yeah. So, 10 years mm-hmm. from now, that, that core, you know, I'm hoping we're going to see that the change has moved into action, the action has moved into results, and and that we will not have these alarming statistics that um, that we're throwing out here today. Thank you very much. And also, I think that uh, talking about statistics, John, yeah, you said partner level 70 to 30 men to women. So hopefully not going there. And, and I agree with you, the 30 years, like, no, come on, guys, we can do that in 10 years, uh, definitely. <laughs> no. But I thank you so much. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add that I haven't covered because, you know, we were discussing about other stuff, but it's like there's another point that you wanted to make. Uh, please feel free to do it. It's like, it's your time. Um... <laughs> you know, I, I think you do. I just, you know, would encourage, yeah. uh, you know, all of all of the CBA members and anyone who hears this podcast, um, you know, if you're struggling, don't, you know, look out for your peers, look out for associations like the OBA that can, you know, provide you, your community that can provide you your superiors, your peer support. And, um, you know, none of, it's, it's amazing. The more conversations I have, the more open I've been, it's amazing how many people have had similar struggles, issues, concerns. And, um, and so, so utilize the networks that you have there, they are available and, you know, we're seeing how important it is. So I, I hope that any, you know, we're starting off with the peer support network on September 14th. It's, you know, front and center on our webpage for lawyers with disabilities. It's going to be safe, confidential. It's it's just going to be a place to talk. I, um, we've done here's we've done train the trainer training. So mm. we have people who are facilitating it who are are going to make sure that the, that space remains safe and reliable. Um, and so I hope that uh, if you or any of your colleagues who um, have uh, have experienced disability in their life and in their practice, that they will will join us for the conversation. Because the, the more people we get, I think the the more enriched conversations. And you know, I think conversations turns into ideas, ideas turn into action. So yeah, I, I really encourage everybody to check that out. Thank you so much. I mean, it was such a like solution driven podcast. I really like that. And I'm sure you're being told that often, but I really like how you answered that. I mean, very lucid, but at the same time having, you know, solutions and uh, proposing uh, actions. So very cool. <laughs> Thank you very no, much. It was, it was fun. I, the, the questions were great and the, and obviously the talk was awesome. So uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate having, having a, a forum to, to yammer on. <laughs> this is the Every Lawyer presented by the Canadian Bar Association.